Hallelujah. Hallelujah. God is so good. So good. Father, be with us this morning as we continue to work through all the technological challenges that this season has created. Bless us to reach the world for you. Enhance our voice. Give us favor. Allow your word to not be restricted in any manner, but to minister your grace into the life of others. We thank you, Father, for this great opportunity, for this chance to share your love, your truth, and your word. You are a great God. There is none like you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We bless you, Lord. We bless you, Lord. We thank the Lord for those of you that are uh, coming on board right now and being with us. I know that you just see the platform uh, right now. We are in the sound room waiting for the live feed to reach our Facebook uh, post so that we can activate the go live feature. We ask that you just bear with us momentarily. Hallelujah. some reason it takes a couple of minutes before the Facebook live feature goes and then we will be on the platform and we will deliver uh, God's word to you we believe that it's going to feed you and it's going to um, allow you to see some things better about yourself we've been in this vein of talking about our identity in Christ and we're thankful that we are in fact what the scripture has declared a new creation we have been remade all things are passed away and behold all things become new what that means what that looks like we're just so excited to share this with you hallelujah
it looks like it is ready. All the other platforms seem to be up and running, and there it goes. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Thank you. I'm just excited about God's grace this morning and how he has blessed us. Hallelujah. To be able to get back on Facebook. We've missed our Facebook family in the last couple of weeks as we work through this technology. So we thank the Lord and we encourage those of you uh, that are uh, tuning in that you, yes, we've just verified, amen, praise the Lord, we've verified that we are uh, live on Facebook, so we're thankful to God, hallelujah. We're still working on the Roku channel, um, we're not really sure exactly yet, we're working with our uh, live stream uh, company to determine what has happened with the live stream uh, on the Roku station, but we have uh, reactivated our Twitter feed. We've um, got the YouTube feed going and, and now the Facebook feed is going, the website. Uh, there was never any interruption there, so we're thankful to the Lord for that. And uh, we're excited because even though the Roku feed may not deliver uh, immediately the live stream at this point, it still is gathering the sermons. So if you have the sermon title, you can still search it and watch it uh, at a later time. If you have uh, Roku and you're tuning into the uh, Grace and Mercy Fellowship Center um, station there on Roku, and you can search us on Roku just by that name, Grace and Mercy Fellowship Center, and you'll see our icon uh, come up that looks very much like this behind me, hallelujah. So we're thankful to the Lord for that, and we don't want to wear your patience. We want to get right into the Word. We're looking forward to what God is uh, going to do in your life as a result of the knowledge that He's going to release today. Uh, we've been talking about our identity We've been trying to build a foundation about who we are in Christ, what that actually means, how that is applied in our daily living. Uh, we begin, we have begun to build that framework, as they say, uh, so that as the frame has been built and the, the foundation has been laid, we can begin to uh, now furnish uh, the building that God is trying to establish in you. And we're going to come to you from uh, the title today, Living My True Identity Out Loud. Living My True Identity Out Loud. Hallelujah. We're finding that if you look at the world, they have no problem. Whatever it is that they identify themselves with, they have no problem living it out loud. The only seemingly group of people that uh, are challenged at living out loud who they are is the body of Christ. Hallelujah. But I want to tell you, I want to teach you today how you can begin to live out loud who you are. But to do that, we have to ensure that you understand that there has been an identity change. You've gone from an identity crisis to 
identity stabilization. You have gone from an identity crisis, not knowing who you are, understanding who you are or why things are the way they are in your life, to being stabilized in the knowledge of your true identity in Christ and the power, the authority, the grace that comes along with that. So we want to talk to you today from that uh, from that subject title, Living My True Identity Out Loud. And we're going to use as one of the foundational verses uh, for today's lesson. Uh, it will be found in the book of Galatians, the fifth chapter, starting at the 13th through the 18th verse. We're going to read this for you. Uh, this is the foundation uh, of today's lesson and, and kind of where we're going to be going over the next few weeks. But we want to, again, um, show you that you have an ability to live out loud who you are. Galatians 5, 13 and 18, it reads like this, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. This I say then, walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Now, I, I want to pause there real quick and, 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 and encourage you to highlight that part of the text in the 16th uh, verse of the 5th chapter of the book of Galatians. Highlight, walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And off on the side, I want you to uh, change, or not change, but uh, associate the word identification with uh, spirit. So walk in the new identification, and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of your old identification. This is the the uh, uh, basis of where we are going. We are identifying who we were, who we are, how to function in who we are, and stop functioning in who we were. Walk in the spirit or in your new identification, and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh or your old identification. It goes on to say, for the flesh, the old identification, lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. So both of these identifications, how you identify, how you see yourself are at war with each other. So those that are in the body of Christ are fighting uh, in, in their mentality with who they used to be and who they have become because of the life of Christ. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. This is not a one-sided thing. This is a two-sided thing. And these are contrary the one to the other. So that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the spirit, ye are not under the law. Hallelujah. Let's, there's a lot there to unpack. As they say, this is a whole lot of luggage to unpack. And, and we're going to do our best to at least start unpacking this, start breaking this down um, 
so that you can uh, apply it and then fulfill the title, which is to live it out loud. Hallelujah. We often wonder how we should live or better deal with the sin that we have committed uh, prior to and after the knowledge of our redemption. This is one of the greatest struggles and one of the things that is uh, talked about, uh, sometimes not in the proper uh, framework or in the proper light. Uh, we, beca- we, we become too sin conscious in the sense that we are so focused on sinning, we have negated the power or the liberty that exists in who we are now, our new identity uh, in Christ, how we are actually free from the power uh, that's motivating us to sin in the first place. Uh, this, is the, this is the struggle, and, and these constant struggles which plague, which plague us can have a debilitating effect on our spiritual walk, uh, not just with ourselves, but with others, and it will definitely have a dampening effect on our understanding of our true identity in Christ. And this is what I really want to get uh, into and get you to begin to function in and think Uh, um, along these lines, your new identity. There's a new thing in you. The Bible declares that God is going to do a new thing in you. Paul outlines six practical subjects that that I'm going to end up discussing with you over these next few weeks. Uh, And I believe that it is the Lord's intention to help us develop a way of practical living which allows the image of our true identity in Christ to shine brightly through us and make us tools that God can use to minister into the lives of those that are hurting and those that are lost, not just in the world, but those that are hurting and those that are lost in the body of Christ. And over the next few weeks, we're going to discuss multiple topics that deal directly with the war that's going on in our minds over who we truly are before and who we truly are after our redemption. You know, this will be kind of a phase two of what I've already begun to lay out for you and introduce over the previous uh, weeks related to our identity. God has been revealing things to me connected to our identity and uh, the understanding of who we are brings the liberation that God has promised in his word. Many of us are bound simply because we have not fully grasped who we are. Hallelujah. Now, the most important thing that we have to you know, understand and remember is this. Jesus has set us free from who we were without him and empowered us to live who we are in him. Jesus has set us free from the power of who we were. That's something you ought to write down. I am free from who I was. See, a lot of us, we, we have stayed so connected to who we were that we cannot function in the liberty of who we are in Christ because we're still uh, moving in alignment with the bondage that we've been freed from. 
I give you uh, an idea. Some things become habitual. So if you work uh, a job uh, long enough, you have uh, certain hours, and, and this obviously is not uh, for, you know, the same for everybody, but there uh, is a large group of people that can relate to this. If you get up at a certain hour every single day to go to that job, you've conditioned yourself, you've conditioned your body to arise or to be disturbed in your sleep at a certain hour. I find sometimes, I typically get up early in the morning, and I find sometimes that even on Saturday, as a matter of fact, yesterday was kind of the first, one of the first times that, well, not the first times, but it's, it's one of the very few times that I've kind of broken from what I'm saying to you, that my wife even commented, uh, Boy, you, you really slept late today, I, and I don't know what happened to me yesterday, but I, I, you know, I've been kind of worn out, and um, you know, yesterday I didn't get up until 10 o'clock in the morning, which is uncommon for me, because I've conditioned myself to arise early, so that even on the days when I'm not projected to work, now with, with my secular job, I end up working all the time for some reason, but... It's normally my day off, and even in my normal day off, because I've conditioned myself, I typically wake up earlier than I have to, and I'll get up and I'll mill about the house doing whatever, drinking coffee or doing whatever it is that um, you know, I, f- I find to do, uh, talking to the Lord, studying, reading, uh, sometimes turn the TV on, whatever it is that I might find myself doing, I find myself doing something because I have conditioned myself to be awake. The problem is, is that on that day, that day off, I don't necessarily have to be awake because this is a typical non-work day. So where I don't typically have to do something, I find myself doing it simply because I've conditioned myself to live or to be a certain way. This is very reflective in the struggle connected with our identity. We have conditioned ourselves prior to the knowledge of Christ, the knowledge of our redemption. We've conditioned ourselves to function a certain way. Now you'll find that, and you'll hear this in church, you'll hear people say this in church all the time, and they don't even realize what they're saying. And I'm not talking about those that have not given their life over to their to Christ or come to the knowledge of who they are in Christ. I'm talking about those who have declared that they are born again, saved, redeemed. They are the redeemed of the Lord. They've made this confession before the Lord. They've given their life over to the Lord. And you'll hear these people say, that's just who I am. And it's typically connected to behavior that is not reflective of their identity in Christ. And they say, that's just who I am, or, um, you know, I'm just not there yet, or, uh, you know, there's this, you know, this idea that they, they, they cannot change from what they once did or knew or behaved, in a, you know, functioned to a new way of being. What they're actually 
denying to themselves is the liberty that God has declared, that God has given over to them in functioning in a newness of life. I cannot be, that's just how I am, if I'm living truth according to the word of God. Because the Bible declares that after the knowledge of God, we become new creations. Old things are passed away, yet behold, all things become new. So either the word of God has failed or it's not um, true or I have a misunderstanding of what happened to me when I was redeemed. And because I lacked the proper understanding of what, I, of what happened to me when I was redeemed, I cannot function in the liberty of my redemption. I have to begin to comprehend the change that has taken place in my life, the, the complete and utter change. I cannot any longer be what I used to be. I have become what he is. Now, you know, we talk about this out of, out of uh, 1 John. I am now what he is. I am now in the earth what Jesus is right now in heaven. So I cannot be, that's just how I am. Especially when the, that's just how I am is connected to things that do not glorify the Father. Hallelujah. But we have to understand that we, Jesus, that we have been made free by Christ. We have been made free by Christ from who and what we were before him. Now, when I say us, I'm referring to those whose faith has been counted as righteousness through Jesus Christ uh, by declaration. They have made this declaration that, um, you know, they have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about those who don't, uh, you know, who uh, just have like head knowledge of Christ, but, I, but I'm talking about those who have a transformed heart knowledge of who Christ is. There are a lot of people, my wife and I were talking about this, uh, this just this past weekend, um, we, we, we watched this debate through, uh, or not debate, but this kind of um, um, interview between two people of uh, different faiths. And both of them, one was a representative of the Islamic faith and one was a representative of the Christian faith. And both of them have been deceived because they agreed that they believed in Christ, and that meant the same thing. Now, if you talk to, uh, you know, a, a Muslim or a, 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 an Islamic believer, they will tell you that they believe in Jesus. They will tell you that they accept Jesus. The problem is, is that we as, as, as Christians, we, we get all excited because they say that they believe in Jesus, However, we have not assessed the content 
of that belief and lacking knowledge of the content when you don't understand what's behind or what fills the belief how can you say you stand in agreement that you believe the same thing the devil believes in Jesus the devil's had conversations with Jesus the devil knows exactly who Jesus is it's not the knowledge of who he is but the content of what you believe about him the Islamic faith has accepted Jesus as a great teacher as a great prophet he's even involved in uh, depending on what sect of the Islamic faith uh, you may follow He's even involved in end-time um, ministry, tribulation period and, and pre-tribulation and post-tribulation. He's involved in it, but he is not the culmination or the center of it as we believe in the Christian faith. We don't believe that he's just a good teacher. He was a good teacher. We don't believe that he um, was a good prophet. He was a good prophet. We believe that he is the son of God. We believe that he is the only way into heaven. And if I'm talking to somebody who makes a declaration that we believe in the same thing, then the belief, the content of that belief has to be the same, else we are deceiving ourselves. So I'm, I'm, I'm talking today to people who have more than just head knowledge of Christ. And there's something that you have to understand that is in great contradiction with even teaching in the body of Christ. We no longer have to work and work in order to secure the approval and the acceptance of God. Truth be told, we simply cannot do enough to receive the approval of God. It is impossible for us to do enough outside of Christ to be accepted by God. Imagine for yourself the satisfaction that you get when someone identifies your work as worthy and then rewards you for that work. We get excited. We take pride in the very things that we have done. And if we are the ones who deserve the glory and the praise for the work that's been done, how then does the Son of God become glorified in our work. He can't. He cannot be glorified in the things that he himself has not done. He cannot be glorified in what he himself has not accomplished. The purpose of our salvation through Christ is to glorify the Son. God wants to glorify Jesus, and that glory cannot be shared based upon equal work. We are not saved because of what we have done. 
We are saved because we believe in what he has done. And because we believe in what he has done, that belief is counted as our righteousness. And this is why we are the glory of Christ, because we in our faith represent what Jesus has done. This is why we believe that there is only one way to God and that uh, through uh, Jesus, the only access to the Father, the manifestation of the declared word that says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. Even though other religious beliefs and other religious faiths would cause you to believe that your works are what is counted for your salvation. And this is a very dangerous place to be because then you begin to think that your entrance into heaven is based upon what you do and not what Jesus has done. And this is, identif this is identification misaligned. This is being identified not of Christ, but of perversion. You see, the believer or the person that has accepted who truly Jesus is, is accepted by God through the work that Jesus alone has done. Now there is a critical fact that we must always remember. And this is connected to the transition of our identity from who we were before Christ to who we have become after Christ and sits at the heart of the struggle that we face too many of us day by day simply because we do not understand our new identity. And that fact is Christian liberty. You see, Christian liberty is not licensed to sin. Christian liberty is authority and power to live in our new identity. You see, before the knowledge of Christ, we lacked the power and the authority to live other than the identity we bore in our carnal state of being. You see, Christian liberty, we're not free to live a lifestyle of sin or to do as we like and then say that uh, the love of Christ, which covers a multitude of sin, accepts me as I have come and expects me to stay this way. In essence, this thinking, that uh, it removes repentance, which is a turn from what was done, and replaces it with carnality. You see... God loves you in your sin, and he sent his son to die, not so that you can continue to live in sin, which is separate from him, but that you can live free from the power of your sin. But the basis of Christian liberty is being free and empowered not to sin. So because I have begun to understand my new identity in Christ, 
I'm not no longer living under the power of sin, which is the motivation to live a life of sin. I am now empowered to live out loud my new identity in Jesus. So then my focus is not sin. My focus is Christ. So then everything I do is measured by how it glorifies Christ. Am I perfect in my natural living? Am I perfect in the things that I do in this natural body? Absolutely not. But I don't live in a condition of habitual sin because my focus, my motivation, my desire is to glorify Christ. So I'm not walking around thinking about the I's I need to dot and the T's I need to cross to justify my... Uh, uh, holy living, I'm walking about seeking how I might please God. I'm not living a life that's based upon laws or rules. I'm living a life that's based upon restored relationship with Christ and the power of Christ working in me so that Christ himself is who is living and not who I used to be in my carnal state of being. You see, I'm free to overcome the passions and the urges of my flesh. And I understand that there's this unceasing war being waged between my spirit and my flesh. But believers are people who have become conscious of the indwelling presence of the Holy Ghost and the power that we are able to purge ourselves and to love our neighbors as ourselves, as the word declares. So that I'm living in my new identity in Christ. And because I'm living in my new identity in Christ, I'm empowered now to focus on things of Christ, not things of my carnal state of being. You've heard me say this before. Man is sin-focused. God is not. When God's attention was turned to sin, he dealt with it in Jesus. God's focus is upon the redeemed bringing glory to his son. And the only way that we can bring glory to the Son is to fulfill his plan of redemption. And the only way to fulfill his plan of redemption is that we understand we are not who we used to be. I was not saved to remain the same. I was saved to be set free. Romans says this, 6, 1 through 2. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? So what are we talking about? We're talking about this argument, this spiritual doctrinal debate between law and grace. The idea that we must first grasp as the children of God 
is to first accept people in their condition of sin. Now understand this clearly. We are instructed to accept the person, not the sin. The problem is, is we have great difficulty separating the person from their action or their sin. So too often, we hate the person because we hate the sin. The idea is if, we're, if we don't condemn the sinner, then we are giving them license or authority to sin. Well, let me share something with you right now. There are folk sinning without the authority to sin or without license to sin right now. They don't care. They're unlicensed to do it. Now, a license is about legality. A license connects you to what you are authorized to do. I can drive a car without a license. A license does not give me the ability to drive in the sense of the physical action of driving. I drive because I have skill and knowledge and experience. I understand how the vehicle functions and I can take control of that vehicle and drive it. What the license does, it gives me authority to drive. Now, I'm not giving anyone authority to sin with this approach to an unlicensed uh, sinner. So let's take a look at the believer and the question of authority. And I want to point out three ideas, and then I'll let you go today. So the first question that comes to mind is, does the grace of God give a person free reign to sin? Can a person just go ahead and do what they want to do, expecting the forgiveness of God and accepting that they are already forgiven of every sin so it doesn't really matter how they live? Well, at the foundation of this thinking is a misunderstanding of their identity. You see, grace means God's undeserved and unmerited favor. It means that God freely accepts and forgives your sin condition, and he freely justifies you by faith to live free from that condition. Now, two things bother a lot of people about the teaching of salvation by grace and grace alone. First, grace seems to give free reign to sin, to put no restraint upon sin. These are often the thoughts of the common man, even believers, which has led to all types of doctrines which allow for every type of living. There is the feeling that if we are forgiven by grace and not by the law or by doing works that are good, then sin doesn't matter that much. We do not have to worry too much about the law of God and righteousness just so we do a fair amount of good or accept Jesus as our Savior. We can pretty much do what we want because God is going to forgive us anyway. God is gracious and loving and good. Therefore, he's going to forgive our sins no matter what we do. Jesus died for our sins. All we have to do is ask him and he will forgive us. Now, this removes consequence from the equation. Action, reaction, cause, and effect. It negates at the core 
your real identity or identification with Christ and realigns you with the identity of your carnal nature. For those who live a habitual life of sin have aligned themselves with that which is not like Christ, so therefore they're not living in the identity of Christ or living free from the power of Christ. Sometimes they don't even realize why they're living a life of sin. They're living a life of sin because they have not identified with the very thing that gives them the power and the authority to live free from the power and the authority of sin. So they become self-fulfilling prophecies of themselves because they lack the understanding of their liberty that's connected in Christ to live free from who they were in their carnality. Some think that grace encourages sin. Paul said that grace is stronger than sin. Romans 5, 15 through 21. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift, for the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification." For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. In essence, what Paul is saying is that the grace of God is so strong, it does not matter the multitude it does not matter how terrible, it does not matter the impact of your sin, God's grace is still stronger. In fact, if you understand the text, you'll find the greater the sin, the more magnified the grace of God becomes. The greater the sin the greater the grace. When a great sinner is forgiven, God's grace is much more magnified than just when a morally good person repents and is forgiven and comes to the knowledge of who they can be in Christ but has lived a morally acceptable life. You see, the greater the sin or the sinner, the more God's grace is magnified and glorified. 
Now, some theologians and philosophers, in particular, those who stress the law, carry this argument even farther in their position against grace. This is one of the dividing lines in many doctrinal debates and organizational splits. No doubt Paul was asked this question time and again by the legalists who hounded and fought against him and just did not understand the wonderful grace of God, just like many in the ministry today still argue about the meaning of grace and the ability to allow any lifestyle to be acceptable in the sight of God. They argue that if forgiveness is by grace, then is sin not a good thing? Should we continue in sin so that God will have more opportunity to prove his grace and become more magnified and glorified? Well, Paul answers this question with a little bit of righteous indignation. You see, he exclaims, God forbid, away with such thinking. Far be it that we ever think in this manner. You see, this is the deceptive work and infiltration of the enemy in the minds of believers. Where do we fight? We fight in the mind or in the thinking of uh, believers and non-believers. You see, the believer's identification in Christ shows the utter impossibility of a true believer continuing in a lifestyle of sin. Notice that I'm talking about a continuing lifestyle in sin. They come to the body or to church in sin because all men have failed. All has come short of the glory of God and sinned. So everyone that comes to God comes in a sin condition. Nobody comes to God without sin. When they come... God implants, he sows a word which starts a process of healing and puts them on the path of deliverance. The idea is that they don't remain in the same state as when they came. Imagine if you went to the hospital sick and you left the hospital sick receiving no help for your sickness. That would be one hospital that I would not go to too often, most likely ever again. I don't want to go to a hospital that can't help me get well. And if I'm well, I don't need to go to the hospital. You see, this is more about the condition of the heart and the behavior which is birthed from that condition. Now, when we talk about continue or lifestyle, we're talking about practice or habitually yielding to something that is devoid of your true identity in Christ. You see, a true believer doesn't practice sin, doesn't yield to the power of sin because we've been freed from it. We cannot function in it if it is Christ that's functioning and Christ is holy. We cannot live without sin, not totally in our current condition in the physical body, but we don't 
practice a lifestyle of sin. You see, this is where the difference lies. A true believer is dead to sin. You ought to write that down. You ought to tell yourself that each and every day. I'm dead to sin. And if I'm dead to sin and Christ is alive in me and the life I live, I live now by the power of him that is in me. My identity is wrapped up in only that which he can do and he cannot sin. How can a dead man live any longer in sin? It's utterly impossible. It is totally against nature. You see, positionally, a real believer has died to self and been placed or identified in Christ so that Christ is now living for him. So then we're restored to our original state in the garden in the manner of the way we live. We now possess the divine nature and as a result are now identified with God. We have the identification of God and because God is holy, I am holy. Second Peter 1 uh, and four says, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, but that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. I have been delivered or empowered to function in my new identity. I am placed and positioned in Christ and therefore identified not just in him, but as him which means I'm dead to self and alive to God. How can we dare think that we can go ahead and live a life of sin because God will forgive us anyway? That's not the thinking of one who is identified with Christ. We don't think that way. Those who think this way have had their minds corrupted with the things of evil and have become slaves again to the very power that they've been delivered from in their liberty as a believer. They've been given over to the power of the flesh and the desires of their flesh to live out the word as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So let me close with this. When you turn to God, you are turning away from sin. Now I know that many are still not in church in the sanctuary, the physical building, made of brick and mortar. But I'm going to ask you anyway that wherever you are at, that you take a moment and you stand up. You face one direction. I want you to get a very good visual picture of everything that's in that direction. Take a good look at it. Visualize it. Let it sink in. Analyze what you see, what you feel, what you smell about that direction. Now I want everyone to turn and face the absolute opposite direction. Now I want you to stand there for a second with your eyes wide open and allow the imagery of new sight to sink in. What you see in this new direction that you are now facing. Stand there just for a second. Let it sink in. Okay, now turn back around and take a seat.
when we turn, watch this, you have different vision. When you turn in the opposite direction, you no longer see what you once saw, but you have a totally new sight picture. This means that you don't see things the same way. You do not comprehend things the same way. You do not visualize the same things. It's a contradiction to say that when a man turns to God, he turns more and more to sin. You see, God's grace does not bring a man to God so that he can be free to sin more. God's grace brings a man to God so that he can be free from sin, given a new sight picture. I don't see sin. I only see the love of God. You see, grace does not give license to sin any more than a dead man is able to move about and live in sin. The problem that we face in the church is that instead of turning in the opposite direction, we keep turning around until we see what we're familiar with and then we get stuck with the same thinking, the same behavior, because we have the same visual, conceptual picture in our mentality. I cannot become something different than what I was in my carnal state of being if I cannot see myself in Christ. I lack the internal power to see myself other than unless a new power enters in. The point that I'm trying to make, believers do not walk in sin because they love God, they love their neighbor, and they've become motivated by the love of God because they've turned from who they were and they've started to visualize who they are now in Christ. We then live and we walk under the greatest of truths, which is the law of love. Love has superseded sin and become the guiding law or motivation of our life and our behavior connected to the understanding of our new identification in Christ. I cease being sin conscious and I become love conscious because love will motivate a lifestyle that is devoid of harm. Harm which is produced out of sin. Simply because I have a new identity and I have license, authority to live out loud that very identity. This is how you ought to inspire your day every day. I have power 
to live in the liberty whereby I have been made free in my identification that I am dead and Jesus is alive in me. I live out loud the scripture. What empowers my being is not my carnality, is not my carnal nature. What empowers my being is the regenerative work of the grace of God through the power of redemption that has made me a new creation. God has done a new thing in me. And because there is newness in me, new things will I produce in my daily life. New things that reflect who I am in him. We'll pick this up and continue more next week. We thank you for your time and attention and know that we are praying for you. God bless you.